Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Neto Chimani. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's ready for this weekend's voter registration drive. Tension mounting in Zimbabwe as ZANU-PF fights for survival. And debate continues about female participation in the labor force as the world commemorates International Women's Day. In economics news, South Africa's president assures investors land reform will take place within the legal framework. And in sports news, a Proteas head coach says his squad remains focused on the cricket ahead of a second Sunfoil test match against Australia. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Robert Mugabe's residents in Harare were taken in for questioning by soldiers. Mugabe is known to have come to South Africa for a private visit earlier, but it's not clear if he's still in the country. At a ZANU-PF youth meeting, the youth of the governing party displayed their displeasure with the former president, Ntakwana Ngatane reports. The same youth who supported former President Robert Mugabe were chanting Pansi na Mugabe down with Mugabe at a meeting with President Emerson Mnangagwa. Some have accused Mugabe of continuing to express political statements in public and fueling discontent inside ZANU-PF, an indication that he is still aggrieved. Mnangagwa said he has no facts about Mugabe activities, but the voice of the people must prevail. With elections around the corner, the divisions within ZANU-PF are likely to affect the party's performance at the polls. Vote counting is underway in Sierra Leone following a general election on Wednesday. Polls closed at 5 p.m. local time. Partial tallies are expected within 48 hours and complete results within two weeks. President Ernest Baikoroma, who cannot run again after two consecutive five-year terms, has anointed former Foreign Minister Samura Kamara as his successor for the ruling APC. Observers from the African Union, Economic Community of West African States, the European Union and the Commonwealth oversaw the voting. Civil society groups in Gabon are demanding the unconditional release of all political prisoners and kidnapped persons in the country. And Amnesty International report published in February condemned the lack of freedom of expression in the Central African nation. The report also cited arbitrary arrests and detentions. 
The committee made up of the defenders of political detainees in Gabon wants the cases referred to international bodies. The committee also hopes more light will be shed on the disappearance of Stemfi Obame and Elaine Hambela Obiang, suspected of being close to Gabonese opposition leader Japing. A United Nations envoy has expressed concern over the political, security and humanitarian situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, despite progress in the electoral process. Briefing the Security Council, Leila Zaroge, the UN Secretary-General Special Representative for the DRC, said notable progress had been made in the past weeks in preparation for presidential and legislative elections, including the completion of voter registration. She however warned that major challenges remain in the country. The envoy has also voiced concern over the use of force by the security forces against peaceful demonstrators and over the country's security and humanitarian situation. And finally, South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's all systems for this weekend's voter registration drive. The commission says it will open its more than 22,000 stations throughout the country from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central African time on Saturday and Sunday. This is to allow South Africans of voting age to either register or update their details in preparation for next year's elections. The Electoral Commission updated the media on its state of readiness for voter registration weekend. Amos Pajo reports. The IEC's Chief Electoral Officer Simon Mamabolo says at the stations voters will be allowed to update their details on the voters' roll. Those who moved to new districts will re-register, while the new eligible voters will also be allowed to register. Some 73,000 officials' team will be deployed across the country to assist at voting stations. Despite efforts to collect addresses, the IEC does not have addresses for some 2.8 million voters, while a further 3.5 million addresses are currently classified as in complete or generic. Mamabolo urged South Africans to visit stations over the weekend to help expedite the process. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks a hundred years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president. Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa. We are
Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekelua in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's all systems go for this weekend's voter registration drive. The commission says it will open its more than 22,000 stations throughout the country from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central African time on Saturday and Sunday. This in a bid to allow South Africans of voting age to either register or update their details in preparation for the 2019 elections. A senior political journalist, Amos Pajo, has more. The IEC Chief Electoral Officer Simon Mamabolo says at the stations, people will be allowed to update their details on the voters' role. Those who have moved to new districts will re-register, while the new eligible voters will also be allowed to register. Some 73,000 officials will be deployed across the country to assist at voting stations, Mamabolo elaborates. Voters are reminded to take along their South African identity documents, either a green barcoded ID book or a smart card ID or a valid temporary identification certificate to their voting stations. There at the voting stations, they will be assisted to complete registration forms, providing their residential addresses at which they ordinarily reside, which will allow the commission to place them in the correct segments of the voters' role. Proof of residence is not a requirement. We will operate on the basis of the address given by the voter. However, they, they need not produce proof of residence. Despite efforts to collect addresses, the IEC does not have addresses for 2.8 million voters, while a further 3.5 million addresses are currently classified as incomplete or generic. Mamabolo has urged South Africans to visit stations at the weekend to help expedite the process. We once again urge all voters to make every effort to visit their voting stations during this coming weekend. We, the Electoral Commission, are ready to open all voting stations this weekend from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. for all voters to easily update their address details on the, fo- on the roll and for first-time voters to register in preparation of the elections next year. Now, we need voters to show up and make use of this uh, opportunity. The Home Affairs Department has meanwhile offered the Electoral Commission its full cooperation in its voter registration initiatives. It has indicated that it will open its offices from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the weekend to facilitate the collection of green barcoded ID books and smart ID cards and the immediate issuing of temporary ID certificates. In the wake of controversy over the citizenship of the Gupta family, the IEC has confirmed that both Rajesh and Atul Gupta are on the voters' roll. In our interaction uh, with the Department of uh, Home Affairs, we looked at three ID numbers. 
belonging to Mr. Ajay Gupta, Mr. Atul Gupta, and Rajesh Gupta. Mr. Ajay Gupta is not on the voters' roll, rather. Remember I said the custodianship of um, citizenship vests with home affairs. So I'm addressing myself to the, to the voters' roll. Mr. Ajay is not on the voters' roll. We can confirm um, that Mr. Atul Gupta is on the voters' roll, as is Mr. Rajesh uh, Gupta. The Electoral Commission has warned political parties not to succumb to temptation to commit fraud during registration and voting processes. It warned of serious consequences for those who may attempt to defraud the system. Elections are expected to be held between May and August next year. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Atul and Rajesh Gupta are South African citizens, however their brother RJ is not. Home Affairs Director General Mkuseli Apeleni sought to clarify the statements that Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba made in Parliament. Gigaba had earlier said Atul Gupta was not a South African citizen. Atul was naturalized in 2002 and his brother Rajesh in 2006. To get an understanding of how immigration and citizenship work in South Africa, here's Craig Smith, Principal Immigration Lawyer at Craig Smith and Associates. Coming to the issue of the Gupta family and uh, Home Affairs had explained at some point that in uh, 2015 uh, there was an application brought by five members of the Gupta family uh, that was unsuccessful uh, due to one of the people in that collective of five having left the country uh, for more than uh, the stipulated period. So that was then uh, the situation whereby uh, it was not granted. They were told to reapply a year later. but within a period of four months, uh, when Malusi Gigaba came in, he actually then granted them um, uh, the uh, naturalization based on special circumstances. So what sort of powers are vested in the minister that he can make that sort of um, a decision? Look, citizenship um, in the main, and certainly naturalization, is awarded by the minister. But the minister has the power to delegate. What that means is he can give instruction to his delegates to make certain decisions with regard to the Citizenship Act. But that does not mean that the uh, minister can can wash his hands of the matter. He still takes total responsibility for the decision-making. Now, arguably, well, it's not arguably, at the end of the day, citizenship is determined as an administrative exercise, and it should automate, it should it should be a tick box exercise. And you would go to the Citizenship Act, read it with the regulations, and you would probably see there's about six requirements. And the adjudication should be predictable and objective. And if you meet all those requirements, you will succeed. What seemed to happen in this case is the minister steps in personally and looks at the matter, exercises his powers under Section 5.9, where he has this power under exceptional circumstances to uh, grant what he calls early naturalization. But that does not mean that the other sets of requirements uh, need not be fulfilled. Um, And moreover, when he does exercise his powers under Section 5.9, 
that also needs to go to Parliament uh, the year thereafter. So, in, in essence, there should be a paper trail of all the decision-making right from the initial application lodged by the Gupta family to a potential refusal, to a potential what they call representations, which were made in 2014, to the minister's decision in 2015. The problem that we have is back in June in 2017, uh, when the Guptas were still the flavor of the month, they brazenly awarded the South African citizenship by naturalization only to realize when they're no longer in favor, they had to undo this because it couldn't be justified in law. And then, of course, as you say, uh, the requirements that are stipulated still need to be fulfilled, and we do know uh, that it was not tabled uh, before Parliament. So what does that mean for the status of this particular naturalization process? Well, what you, you, what you would expect is the minister to step in and, and put up his hand and concede there was an error. Instead, we are hearing all sorts of stories about how many Guptas there are on, on, uh, on, a, on a particular list. And then you hear about a family-related application. You hear about internal appeals. So you hear a whole lot of stories that you didn't hear eight months ago. And frankly, it just to me seems rather unfortunate that the department hasn't actually come clean on the facts. Because really, you should be applying the facts to the law. We don't even know what all the facts are, so we're not we're not going to get to a certain uh, a certain outcome. And I think the public needs to know. And uh, just a final one, because this is a question that I've seen quite a lot coming to us and also on social media platforms regarding um, BEE status. Um, If you are a naturalized citizen, does that apply to you? And if not, if you're a permanent resident, uh, do you qualify for such? Well, look, I'm not an expert on the issuing of BEE certificates. But as I understand, um, you, would, you would be required to be a South African citizen. Um, it's the same story that you hear in terms of the IEC saying they were on the electoral roll to vote. Um, and what we have is they're trying to undo, undo the damage in the sense that uh, they are, as a matter of fact, uh, South African citizens but yet you find that, unfortunately, you can't. They, they are trying to undo what uh, clearly was irregular. And this is, this is just one of the many matters that needs to come to the fore so that they can come clean and tell us the truth. Because, after all, the public needs to know. Um, the public needs to know we have a, a clean government. We need to know we have a clean administration. Because it doesn't bode well for the average person who is applying for South African citizenship or a visa, or permanent residence when this sort of thing is happening from your most senior officials. That's Craig Smith, Principal Immigration Lawyer at Craig Smith & Associates, speaking to Sakina Kamwendo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Let's go back in time to today in 1917. On the 8th of March, the first International Women's Day was launched in several European countries in March 1911. It was celebrated on the 19th of March and over a million men and women took to the streets in a series of rallies. In addition to the right to vote and to hold public office, they demanded the right to work and an end to discrimination on the job. That's today in history in the year 1917. The issue of the safety and security of the investigators who will be working on the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in South Africa will be made a priority. As according to Commission Chairperson and Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, he announced the key appointments in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, on Wednesday. Former Auditor General Terence Nombebe will be head of investigations and seasoned lawyer Paul Pretorius will be the head of the legal team. Noma Bolani compiled this report. I've decided that we will not disclose the identity of the investigators to the public for reasons that should be understandable. While the identities of the investigators will be kept hidden from the public, Deputy Chief Justice and Commission Chairperson Raymond Zondo has appointed former Auditor General Terence Nombembe to lead the investigative team. Investigations into the allegations of state capture are set to begin in two weeks and the concerns of safety have taken center stage. We are very conscious of the need for security and we are taking all reasonable steps to make sure that um, the issue of security is given priority. That, that's what, that's what I, I can tell you. Nombembe is currently the CEO of the SA Institute of Chartered Accountants and the chairperson of the Gauteng Ethics and Anti-Corruption Advisory Council. Zondo says Nombembe's past experiences make him the perfect man for the job. I have no doubt that the commission will derive a lot of value from Mr. Nombembe's participation in this commission as head of investigations. Other appointments include advocate Paul Pretorius as the head of the legal team. The senior counsel, a seasoned lawyer, will be joined by three other senior counsels, namely Isaac Maleka, Liak Gabashe and Tandi Norman. Khutso Devia, former NPA CEO, will be the commission secretary. Meanwhile, Zondo says there's still no clear indication as to when the commission hearing will start. For now, background work, including probes, will be the main focus. He says a date should be determined in a few months. We have looked at the work that needs to be done by the commission and some of the investigations will make it easy for the commission to commence hearings in regard to those investigations in the next few months. Uh, I can't give you uh, anything more definite than that, but in the next few months, I think we will be able to begin 
then there will be other investigations that will take more time. The Deputy Chief Justice also confirmed that the Commission has limitations in terms of pursuing criminal charges stemming from evidence that will be brought before them. He says all they can do is put in recommendations in the final reports that will be handed over to the President. Evidence from the Commission cannot be used in criminal procedures. Zonda says he hopes after the conclusion of the commission, South Africans will have a better understanding of the lengths and depths of state capture. South Africans hopefully will understand the depth of this state capture issue, to what extent, how deep it was, and how it, it, it came about, and what should be done to make sure that South Africa never gets into that situation again. So I think for me, if at the end of this process, this nation is able to say, we now understand the depth of state capture and how it it occurred and who were involved in it, then I think that would be very important. And that report by Norma Bolani in Johannesburg, South Africa. Tension is mounting in Zimbabwe as the governing party ZANU-PF fights for survival. According to reports, workers at former President Robert Mugabe's residence were taken in for questioning yesterday. Former First Lady Grace Mugabe is apparently anxious and not sure whether to remain at the house. Her husband and former President Robert Mugabe arrived in a private visit to South Africa earlier yesterday and at its meeting, the party's youth wing displayed displeasure with Mugabe. Ntakwanangatan reports. These are the youth who once supported former President Robert Mugabe. Mugabe has publicly said he believes the change of government was a coup, an indication that he is still aggrieved by the events that saw him ousted after 38 years in power. Some have accused Mugabe of making public political statements, fueling discontent and divisions in the ZANU-PF. Speaking at a youth gathering, the party leader and president, Emerson Mnangagwa, made his views clear on the matter. The former president, Paita Nyaya, Currently, we see in the media about various speculations about these activities. I have no doubt in that in no time the facts and the reality will be made known and will only take position when reality and uh, the issues are known and is factual. But currently, we are not happy with what the media is saying. We don't know whether it's correct or not, but it's an issue that we are examining. The voice of the people is the voice of God. With elections scheduled for later this year, the divisions within ZANU-PF are likely to affect the party's performance at the polls. I'm Takwana Ngatan in Johannesburg. 
Cameroon's President Paul Bia has appointed new ministers, including English speakers, to positions they have never occupied before. It is believed to be an olive branch extended to the English-speaking regions that have been protesting marginalization from the French majority, but many think it is not a solution to the crisis that has lasted more than a year. Moki Kenzaga reports from Yaoundé. Paul Bia appointed Professor Nalova Lyonga from the English-speaking Southwest region as first English-speaking Cameroonian to head the Ministry of Secondary Education since the country gained independence in 1960. Atanganji Paul from the English-speaking Northwest region becomes the first ever English-speaking Cameroonian to occupy the position of Minister of Territorial Administration and Decentralization since independence in 1960. Paul Atanganji says by appointing them to such prestigious positions, Bia has indicated that he will not relent in improving the conditions of the minority English speakers in the country that also has French as an official language. This appointment is another testimony that Anglophones have always had preferential treatment in Cameroon. And President Paul Beer, as I've always said it, whenever he has to take any important decision, he, Anglophones have always been in the center of those decisions. President Paul Beer has proven beyond reasonable doubt that he has total confidence in English-speaking Cameroonians. Paul Atanganji is Paul Beer's close aide. When crisis started in the English-speaking Northwest and Southwest regions in November 2016, with teachers and lawyers protesting the overbearing use of the French and of the French language and marginalization of English speakers, Paul Atanganji granted what has been described by many as the most controversial interview to the state broadcaster CRTV. He said, as far as he was concerned. There was no such thing as problems specific to Anglophones in Cameroon. After the appointment, supporters of President Bia said it was part of a solution to the more than one year long Anglophone crisis that degenerated with violence and killing. The community in Cameroon is protesting political and economic discrimination in the majority French speaking country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines tension is mounting in Zimbabwe amidst reports that workers are at former President Robert Mugabe's residence in Arare were taken in for questioning by soldiers. Vote counting is underway in Sierra Leone following a general election on Wednesday and civil society groups in Gabon demand the unconditional release of all political prisoners and kidnapped persons in the country. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, today marks World Kidney Day annually observed on the 8th of March. Chronic kidney disease affects approximately 195 million women worldwide and is currently the eighth leading cause of death in women. South Africa's live healthcare group says little is known about the seriousness of CKD and much more attention is needed. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by the group's unit manager at Life Renal Dialysis, Julian Kazamula. Julian, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine and a very good morning. How prevalent is kidney disease in South Africa? Uh, good morning, and Good morning to your listeners. Uh, chronic kidney disease is actually uh, quite uh, prevalent. Uh, we have the South African and uh, Renal Society of which keeps debts of uh, what uh, the progress is. And uh, in 2013, uh, they measured uh, per million. According to status, say they were about uh, uh, 167 uh, per million population. Uh, what they do, they look at the population at that time and at how many people are actually affected by chronic kidney disease. And in 2014, it had actually risen to about 178 uh, million population, of which was a 9% increase. And 2015 was 189, of which was a further 9.4% increase. So that's the latest information that the South African Renal Registry has, of which was published on the 1st of September. So it is a quite uh, prevalent uh, condition in South Africa and we're seeing an annual increase. Let's speak about the main causes and uh, symptoms of kidney disease. Okay. The main causes of kidney disease is uncontrolled uh, diabetes and and, uh, people with blood pressure, high blood pressure. We also have... uh, uh, increased uh, risk in people who have a family history of uh, uh, polycystic kidney disease, people with uh, uh, who've, who've had uh, lupus nephropathy, glomerular nephritis, of which is the kidney infection as well. And we also uh, find people who are using uh, usage of painkillers, and we always uh, recommend that people go see doctors without, uh, you know, we, we, and stop using like painkillers for long term. Today is. In, the, uh, sorry, Julian, I was just going to say today is uh, International Women's Day, which is celebrated globally. Why are women most affected than men? Okay. You know, the isn't that much uh, difference in the, you know, the number of. Uh, women affected in and it's slightly increased when it comes to women. Now, what's seen is that uh, most women, uh, especially when it comes to pregnancy, you know, you have uh, uh, complications of pregnancy like uh, people who go into pre-eclampsia, which is uncontrolled blood pressure and uh, also characterized by the presence of uh, protein in the urea. Now, people who've got uh, chronic kidney disease, once they fall uh, pregnant, because of its, just to take it back, Lulu, it's a, it's a progressive disease. So it's slow, 
and it can be, you know, over a period of months or over years. Now you have uh, different stages, of which the first stage is whereby there's no significant uh, reduction in the kidney function, whereby the person would still be uh, producing about 90 mils or more per minute of uh, the urine. And then we go to the next stage, of which is the mild one, and uh, the production drops down to about 60 to 89, and the moderate stage to about 30 to 59. Now, what happens is that most people don't know because of the symptoms don't actually show until way late into the disease progression. Now, the body can tolerate up to about 90% before people start seeing symptoms. Hence, uh, what we encourage people is that once they get to the moderate stage, of which is a reduction of about uh, below 60, that they now start seeing a kidney specialist. And that will help with uh, trying to arrest the progression and even at times uh, completely uh, eradicating it. Now, what are the consequences of kidney failure, especially in women? As you mentioned earlier, that there isn't much of a difference between uh, women and men uh, in terms of uh, being affected. But what are the consequences, for, especially for women? And you can also mention how um, men are affected, if it is different or if there is a difference. Yeah. You, you see, I mentioned uh, lupus, of which uh, tends to affect a lot of young women between... Uh, you know, for uh, 15 to 44, and the onset of that, it's an uh, autoimmune disease that actually attacks all the organs of the body, and kidneys are one of the organs that, uh, you know, get uh, affected. And with uh, women, and like I said, pregnancy, uh, in the presence of uh, chronic kidney disease, even though uh, it hasn't somehow presented itself with the symptoms and so on, as soon as they fall pregnant and all that, that can accelerate the progression to, you know, uh, even what you call end-stage renal disease, whereby now the patient will be dependent on uh, lifetime dialysis or even uh, required transplantation. Now, what are the treatments or how do you manage kidney disease? Okay. With the early stages, if it's picked up early, uh, like I said, when we, I said people should go see a nephrologist once it's picked up, and uh, they can put patients on medication and therefore keep a close uh, eye on them and make sure that uh, it doesn't uh, progress to the end-stage uh, uh, renal disease. Now, once it reaches the end-stage uh, renal disease, it's when then they, they will need dialysis. And then uh, there's different types of uh, treatment. It's hemodialysis, whereby the patient will be connected to a machine through an artificial kidney. And with that, uh, they will be removing the toxins that uh, the normal normal kidney would normally do, as well as uh, control of the fluid in the body. The second one is uh, peritoneal dialysis, whereby the doctors will use the membrane of the abdomen and uh, connect a port, and then normally it's done at home by the patients themselves, but they will do the exchanges to get rid of the toxins and uh, the excess fluid. Then lastly, it's a transplantation. Because of uh, chronic kidney disease, it's incurable. That's the one thing that we need to make people aware of. So it's quite important that people are aware of the, you know, the risk and make sure that uh, the non-communicable diseases, that uh, your hypertension and your you know, diabetes are well controlled. 
and a lot of things that people can do. It's actually lifestyle changes uh, to help prevent the disease. And one of those will be ensuring that you actually drink sufficient fluid. You make sure that your blood pressure is controlled. You make sure that your diabetes is also controlled. Exercising, making sure that you keep your body healthy and so forth. Julian, we'll leave it there for now. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Julian Gazmula, Unit Manager at Life Renal Dialysis, joining us on the line. Now, South African traders are part of the almost 200 countries from all parts of the world attending the International Travel Trade Show in Berlin, Germany. SA's tourism CEO Sisan Jona is part of the government delegation from the Southern African nation. According to the tourism department, the business tourism market generates more than 250,000 direct and indirect jobs per annum. Our reporter Mbali Sibanyoni joins us on the line from Berlin, Germany. Mbali, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us about the International Travel Trade Show. What does it hope to achieve? Well, basically, we have about uh, 184 countries who have come here from around the world. And this is basically where they come here to come and showcase what their country is made out of. And this is in terms of tourism. So you have a number of uh, people who own um, certain tourist destinations, is, uh, certain uh, uh, places in terms of the scenery that South Africa provides um, in terms of South African tourism. Uh, they are advertising certain places like the Western Cape, the Eastern Cape, uh, KZN, uh, as well as in Bumalanga, and basically trying to attract uh, tourists from around the world to come to South Africa and also generate uh, more money towards the economy. Now, what are the South African traders saying about being in Berlin? What's their reaction been like so far? Well, I must say that uh, they are very happy. They are saying that this is the world's uh, biggest uh, trade show. So this is a chance for them to come and advertise themselves even more. They're saying that they've even gotten a nice reception from other countries, saying, uh, because for the past two days we've only been having businesses who have been showcasing uh, at their different stalls. And we are at the at the uh, South African stall that we have a, a number of uh, exhibitors. We have about uh, 40 exhibitors who have come out and who have come to advertise what the country is made out of. And one thing in particular that uh, Tourism South Africa is focusing on this year is also advertising these smaller provinces, such as your northwest, the Bobo, uh, the Eastern Cape, uh, Free State. So they're really going out of their way because they're saying that most, uh, most foreigners uh, enjoy coming to places like Johannesburg, Durban, and Cape Town, as well as Mpumalanga. So now they're saying that they're trying to even make the other smaller uh, provinces even more attractive, like your Northern Cape as well, just to show that uh, there's just much more to South Africa than just three or four provinces. We have about nine provinces, and it shows that we have a lot of diversity, and meaning that there is quite more uh, for people to come and see. Um, and one thing that I also related uh, from one of the uh, people from the Tourism South Africa, Theresa Bay Mueller, is she's saying that, uh, especially here uh, in Germany, um, people love coming to South Africa, and they also like exploring the not-so-common areas. So they want to be going to places that other Germans have not been to. And she's saying that uh, that's the way now that they think that they are trying to promote South Africa as a whole.
And what's the reaction been like to the trade show from the people of Germany themselves and the businesses that are there? Because obviously it's not only, um, you know, uh, South Africans who are there represented. There should be other countries there with you. What's the reaction been like um, towards South Africa and what's being showcased there? Well, for now, it is still businesses, so they're still basically going around. And when I say businesses, these are the car hiring companies. These are also travel agents. Uh, these are also tour operators uh, who are in this type of business. So for now, um, in terms of the normal people, they'll only be allowed to come to the trade show tomorrow. But I must tell you that the, tour, the South African store is attracting a lot of um, the businesses and they're saying that this is a destination that a number of people from their countries really like visiting but i must say from just being in that hall and being in that exhibition hall you really get a sense of camaraderie among among these uh especially southern african countries so i mean the way we are situated it is the south african side it is the Zimbabwe side the swaziland um, side as well as the Libyan side. So even from the people surrounding uh, the South African school, you are getting the sense of saying that people really enjoy coming to South Africa to come and visit the destination. Now, Mbali, very quickly, just in wrapping up, uh, you reported that Germany plans to honor the late first democratically elected President Nelson Mandela with the stamps. Can you share more details on this? Well, we were we were actually this was basically announced at uh, at the South African Embassy, and this was announced by the ambassador Stun Suzani, saying that uh, this is the word that they've gotten from um, from the German government. But we're not yet sure when this sample will really be uh, released. But we are thinking that it would be released around uh, Nelson Mandela's birthday. This is, of course, as we celebrate the hundred years of Nelson Mandela. So this is something that uh, the German government wants to honor and keep Madiba's name alive by honoring him with this stamp. Mbali, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Mbali Sibanyoni, our reporter, joining us live from Berlin in Germany. It is 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko. Good morning. The South African Society of Bank Officials has condemned one of the largest banks, NetBank, for announcing plans to cut 3,000 jobs as a result of robotics. NetBank has announced it could possibly cut jobs as a result of software robots, but that the job losses would be offset through the bank's expected growth. NetBank has installed 59 software robots and plans to have 200 in place by the end of the year. The South African Society of Bank Officials has warned that while it was not oblivious to technological changes, the news of such a high number of job losses at a single bank may create resentment about their impact. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has assured Moody's Investor Services that land reform will take place within a clear legal framework. Ramaphosa met with the rating agency for the first time on Wednesday. He spoke about various initiatives to attract investment and accelerate job creation in South Africa. 
Ramaphosa has told Moody's that government will ensure that the proposed expropriation of land without compensation does not negatively affect economic growth and agricultural production. Tsepo Mwai reports. Fresh consultations on the mining charter and the recent cabinet reshuffle are some of the initiatives that government advanced to rating agency in an effort to demonstrate the country's commitment to deal with its ongoing challenges. The rating agency met with Finance Minister Ntlantanene on Monday. Moody's is due to announce its latest outlook on South Africa on the 23rd of this month. Tsepo Mungwai, SABC News, Johannesburg. The International Monetary Fund says Nigeria is slowly exiting recession but remains vulnerable because its growth is tied to oil prices with improved revenues restricted to the energy and agriculture sectors. The assessment published in a report on Wednesday came in the IMF's Article 3rd Consultation, an annual appraisal of the country's economy. The Reuters news agency reported on the lender's findings last week after seeing a copy of the document which states that the fund expects Nigeria's government to muddle through in the medium term. Namibia's economy has contracted in 2017 by 0.4% but is expected to recover and expand by 1.2% in 2018. Finance Minister Shale Slayton in a speech delivered before Parliament said the Southern African nation's budget deficit will decrease to 4.5% of gross domestic product in 2018-19 from 5.8% the previous year. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.84 to the South African rand. It's at 9.38 in Botswana and at 9.67 in Zambia. 72 pence to the British pound, 80 cents to the euro. Gold, $1,327. Platinum, $954 an ounce. At the price of Brent crude oil is at $64.52 a barrel. Ludigabu. A sports update up next with Neto Chamani. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sport fans. Starting off with football news. Defender Pape Suwari, whose career was almost cut short by a car crash, has been handed a chance to go to the World Cup after being named in Senegal's squad for warm-up friendlies against Uzbekistan and Bosnia later this month. The 27-year-old Crystal Palace full-back is among several players who did not play a part in Senegal's successful qualifying campaign to be given an opportunity to prove their fitness for this year's tournament in Russia. Suwari broke his thigh bone and jaw and had to be cut from a mangled wreck following the crash in September 2016 and did not play again for over a year. He has only featured three times for struggling Palace this season as a substitute in cup games. Senegal coach Aliou Sisse has also recalled former Chelsea defender Papi Jibojo Papi who has last played for his country at the 2015 African Nations Cup, and Stoke City striker Mame Briam Diof, who was dropped for the last five games of last year. Senegal play Uzbekistan on March the 23rd in Casablanca, Morocco, and Bosnia in Le Havre in France on March the 27th, as they prepare for only their second World Cup finals appearance. In Russia, Senegal will take on Poland, Japan, and Colombia in Group H.
On to cricket news. Zimbabwe handed Afghanistan their second successive defeat in the tournament when the African side successfully defended 196 runs to win by two runs in a nail-biting finish at the Queen's Sports Club. It was Zimbabwe's second straight victory and while it has enhanced their chances of reaching the Super 6 stage, the defeat has left Afghanistan in serious trouble as they have to win their remaining two matches to regain an Nepal and Hong Kong to keep their hopes of qualifying for the World Cup alive. On to rugby news. South African Springbok forward Tendai Mtawarira has backed new Springbok coach Rasi Erasmus to bring back the glory days to South African rugby after his appointment last week. The national team has been on the way in recent years and parted company with Alistair Kutsia last month following a troubled two seasons in charge. His replacement Erasmus has signed a five-year deal and will combine his new role with current one of director of rugby at SA Rugby. Mtawarira, a veteran of 98 caps in the green and gold is pleased with the appointment. I think Rashi's got a you know a lot of, a, a lot of experience and he has achieved a lot as a coach. So uh, you know, I think I had the privilege of uh, working with him before the 2011 World Cup and uh, yeah he's a uh, you know he's a, he's a guy that believes in standards. So I think he's he's going to bring back you know those standards those standards uh, Springbok rugby that everybody everybody wishes uh, and uh, I think he will he will make sure that the team is picked on merit. So there's not going to be you know you know no guarantees. You have to make sure you perform if you want to earn your a former flanker Erasmus earned 36 caps for the Springboks after making his debut in 1997. Now 45, he retired from playing in 2006 after serving as a player coach of Free State before going on to coach the Stormers and most recently work as director of rugby at Irish Club Munster. He will be assisted by Jack Ninaber. Peter De Villas and Mzondi Lestik. Shaq's coach Robert Dupree says he's excited by the move. I think it's very. I'm very excited. I'm really excited with uh, with Rossi there. Um, I think it's going to be great for South African rugby. We've had very good interaction with Rossi up till up till now. Um, since uh, you know he was appointed the director of of, of, of South African rugby, um, as well as Peter and and um, and and Job Ninaver. And finally, in athletics, if Costa Semenya has her way, the oldest South African track and field record might just be wiped out of the record books tonight when she lines up to race the 1,000 meter during the Liquid Telecom Athletics Grand Prix meeting at Tax in Pretoria. 35 years ago, on the 7th of February 1983, in Plumfontein, Ilse Wixel won the 1,000 meter track event to set a new South African record by winning in a time of 2 minutes 37.2 seconds. Olympic and World champion Semenya makes no secret that she's been dreaming a long time to attempt the record, but there was never an opportunity for her to do so. Should she succeed, it would be a classic scenario of one trailblazer in South African athletics taking over from another. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned to more sports news in the next hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it's ready for this weekend's voter registration drive. Tension mounting in Zimbabwe as ZANU-PF fights for survival. And the debate continues about female participation in the labor force as the world commemorates International Women's Day. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Ronald Piri and Khomutso Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. You can also send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Busi featuring Heavy K with a track titled Easy to Love.